Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. With this session, we talk with Adam Mosley, and as he says, it's two E's, M-O-S-E-L-E-Y. Adam teaches with us at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music's Music Industry Program and works with our undergraduates on how to think about it and really design and engage with sound. Adam is a intriguing producer, mixer, and audio engineer who came up, as he'll share the hard way, and was not a technology person. And he'll share how technology has guided almost every shift he's had in his career and how those diverse skills and experiences working in many cases with top artists of the day, how those experiences and understandings of sound and music, as well as his synesthesia, play into his current work, which is working with new technologies and and spatial audio, the way we think about music in space, designing music in space, in, in uh, mixed reality environments, but how he started from not just the basics, but the basics of non-music skills to get into music that brought him to the door, through the door, and into creating new doors in music. So please enjoy this conversation with Adam, and this will be the first of several conversations with him, but starting out with how in the world Adam got to where he is with his unique set of experiences and perspectives on space and music. What did you do to get into music? How long have you been doing music? What are all your adventures? You've got a really rich history. Right. Well, you can't believe everything you read. Okay. That I definitely (laughs) know. That part I'm quite aware of. Yeah, but but there's, luckily, in what you've, what's out there about me, uh, it's normally got some background to it. Okay. So I've been in studios for 41 years. Since you were a small child. Yeah, since before I was born. Well, I was 20. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I come from a musical family. My father was a jazz musician, semi-pro. What did he play? My father played upright bass, electric bass, and before that originally it had been a jazz guitar. So I grew up in a family. My dad had been a radio engineer in the Air Force in the Second World War. So in our house, we had stereo speakers wired all over the house and in the kitchen. Grew up in a musical family, didn't show much interest in wanting to play an instrument. But I was born in 1957. In terms of my career, I never use the word lucky because everything that's happened, I created or I worked my butt off for. So there's a small element of luck in that. If you can't deliver, if you don't have the experience and people don't want to work with you and you don't know what you're doing, then luck isn't going to get you very far. In my story, I think I was lucky that I was born into a musical family and that I have a sister who's five years older. So when the Beatles broke in 1962, I was five and she was 10. I have a twin brother too. From the age of five, every day there was music. My dad was bringing back vinyl albums almost every day it seems my sister was borrowing a friend's record or buying vinyl and 
I just grew up immersed in not just music, but in sound. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that. But just the sound of like stereo in different rooms and just enjoying the experience of sound and lying on the floor between the speakers listening in the in our living room listening to albums over and over and over all day on vinyl and then my dad had a four track tape recorder and I'd put the microphone out to try and record songs and so on but didn't realize I was getting any interest or that I was moving towards anything audio it just seemed normal yeah it was, but constantly immersed in all kinds of music every day, whether it was bebop, jazz, or big band, you know, Basie or now, Ellington in Brighton, in Brighton, in the south of England, mm -hmm. which is was kind of made famous by the Who with the film Quadrophenia. Mm -hmm. Brighton was always the most progressive town in England as well, probably still is. At, suddenly, at thirteen, two elements: one, I heard Michael Brecker, the sax player, mm -hmm. playing sax. And suddenly I wanted to play an instrument. My brother and I, we were working Saturday jobs. We saved up. We got saxophones. Got saxophones. Which are not the cheapest of instruments to no, acquire. not at all. Mm -hmm. And my dad had said, well, if you get a clarinet, if you play clarinet, then you, if you learn that, you, you'll be able to play any reed, which is kind of true. Not any reed, but most reeds. Because clarinet's a very complicated Mm -hmm. instrument and you, can, you can go there to oboe but it's a whole different right thing. yeah but for the fingering it, it's quite difficult the way a, a clarinet is set out so we got a clarinet we shared it and we never played it we go to a music lesson on a sunday morning open the case <laughs> squeak for an hour yeah, yeah and then not even clean the thing it was disgusting just close the case go home and during the week after our homework we'd jam along with records on sax i was banned from studying music at school, so I never... Banned by your family? By my music teacher. Because? Uh, religious reasons. I'm Jewish, and okay. that, that wasn't his favorite on his list. Okay. So it was made impossible for me to learn music at school, uh, or borrow school instruments, or have music lessons at school. Wow. So, so okay. Put a band together at school uh, with my brother, and we weren't very good. So I thought, obviously, it can't be me. It must be that there aren't enough good musicians in Brighton. During my holidays in growing up at like 15, 16, I worked in France for an exchange language school. So I'd spend my a lot of holidays working in France. I traveled quite a bit in Europe, decided that I needed to be in London because I'd be with better musicians and then I could become a rock star because they'd be... Rock star was the goal at this time. Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah. Um, rock star... Playing saxophone. Yeah, and writing. And guitar. And writing, not guitar then, just playing a bit of bass. Okay. Because my dad had the bass around. Um, so I'd, I'd play sax until my teeth were through my lip. Then I'd play bass until I had blisters on my fingers. Mm -hmm. And then I'd sing along with records. So that was my Sunday. So took a, took a year off, decided I, have to go, I had to go to university to get to London would get a grant from the government, which would basically finance me to move to London where I could put a band together with better musicians. But I took a year off. Previously in traveling, I'd been to Sweden. I decided to go back up to Sweden. I was eight, 17, 18, or 18, I guess, for, go to Sweden for the best part of a year. But to make money to do that, I worked on construction sites and doing removals of furniture and delivering pianos and stuff like that. Made enough money, went to Sweden, in Sweden, got a job with food because I'd traveled before 
and had been broke within a week and was like sleeping on park benches and stations and going through trash bins and stuff. So you were not a non-adventurous young man? No. Okay. I was quite determined. Okay. Although I wasn't sure what I was determined at. I thought I was just stubborn and determined. In Sweden, I worked three jobs with food, one in a restaurant in the morning where I became an assistant chef, in the afternoon a bakery, and at night the glamorous job of working at the first McDonald's in Stockholm. I think I've been to that McDonald's. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, came back, moved to London, went to law school, because I, I had all my... Wait, 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 weren't you wanting to start a band and be a famous rock star? Oh, yeah, but I had to move to London and study so that I could get a grant to be able to live in London, where I'd find the other musicians to enable me to be the rock god. Okay, okay. Um, so did that, went to law school. I'd majored in, not majored, but in England, my A-levels and O-levels were all in languages. I failed every science, couldn't do anything technical. So all my subjects were English language and lit, French language and literature, and Russian language and literature. So I hear... Language is music. I see music visually. We'll get into that. You're, you have I, synesthesia? I, yeah. Okay. But also I see music in, in shapes and dimension and perspective in 3D. So I can often I'll, I, I draw a song in my mind from the first moment when an artist sits down and plays a song on a piano or an acoustic guitar to me or just sings. Not only do I hear an arrangement and not only do, do I see the sounds in color, but I see the shapes of the color and their perspective in what I call the sonic field, which I'll explain. Okay. So it's a very visual interaction. In, in my class that I teach here, the art of music production, in a part of the, the class, I actually show film clips of certain scenes and then represent in a mix, show a mix where I did, where the mix was inspired by a visual that I saw in the film. Hmm. And then create the emotion and the feeling and the dynamic of a certain scene but in sound in the dimension of sound in the sonic field but anyway went to law school put a band together still crap um <laughs> so thought okay well maybe it's not london maybe i've got to know how to do this and from as early as i can remember with my sister always bringing home vinyl my dad was bringing home vinyl and every day it seemed that music was being invented back then i really need to go back and look at the chrono chronological order of things mm -hmm. but it seemed like every week it was the beatles and the stones or the kinks or t-rex or velvet underground or the monkeys or the mamas and papas or mm -hmm. led zeppelin or crosby stills or Joni mitchell or james taylor or carly simon or hendrix or pink floyd or but it seemed like every day something new was happening or every week and as a kid when that started to explode at the age of five, it was just, I realized how important that was and how much music was absorbed, which is, I think, our process is about absorbing and educating our instincts. Mm -hmm. Quit law school. The useful part was that in the first year of law school, you do contract law. And that was the useful bit. Quit law school was a driver for my uncle in the fashion business in London delivering ladies' dresses to department stores for six months while I tried to get into studios. I wrote loads of letters, maybe maybe near 100. There were loads of studios back then. I got one reply. 
Um, I knew nothing about the studio. Went to the interview. The studio manager asked me, you know, uh, why I was there, why I'd written to them. And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to be a record producer. Because on vinyl, I'd seen on the back of the label, of a vinyl, the big <laughs> name was the record producer. Yeah, the big, the big typeface. Right, mm-hmm. back then. So he must be the guy that knows how to put it together. Okay. So I thought, well, that's it. I'll, I'll just become one of them then. That, that'll have that sorted. So went to the studio, had my interview manager said, why are you here? And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to be a record producer. And do you have any jobs going for that? And, <laughs> and he laughed and he said, do you know anything about the studio? I said, no. And he said, well, a few people from here have gone on to do quite well. But I see from your letter that you've worked on construction sites and that you've been a chef. And I said, yeah. So he said, well, we're enlarging the control room. I'm fed up paying for takeout food for 15 people. So I want you to be what's called the jobber's mate, where you do all the crap jobs that the builders don't want to do, the construction guys. You're their runner. I want you to do that. And then every afternoon, come to me at four o'clock. I'll give you petty cash. And you've got to cook for 15 people. There's a four ring electric stove up in on the top floor. I want you to cook three course meals, serve it, clean up, and then go back to construction. And I'll pay you 20 quid a week, which is about $25, but it was 1978. And I was like, done. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. that was my glamorous start. Into How the old were you at that point in time? 20. Okay. It was the only studio that, that gave me an interview because in those days at 20, you were too old. They wanted you from school without finishing your education because every great studio wanted to mold the team in their likeness. Mm. Every studio had their method and their way of doing things. Abbey Road, Island, Olympic, Psalm, all the different studios had their different ways. And... I knew nothing, but I knew that I'd walked in a building that had a name Trident Mm -hmm. over the front of the door. I didn't know that the Beatles had done Hey Jude and the White Album, or Bowie had done Ziggy Stardust, Hunky Dory, the Space Oddity, the first three albums, or that Elton John had done his first three albums. Carly Simon had gone there to do You're So Vain. Queen was signed to Trident for the first five albums. It was just one of the 200 companies you applied to. Yeah, and the one letter, the one interview I got, and was hired as a chef and construction worker. So let's cut to what did Trident bring you to, and what were your superpowers you developed while being there? I worked through all the different stages from from the way that you had to do is work your way up Mm -hmm. at each stage you were being tested there was a load of bs that was thrown of you a lot of mind games a lot of treatment which today would be illegal but it's also what made or or, you know it made you or or it broke you and i saw a lot of people get broken Mm -hmm. by it but again i was stubborn and determined and so you had to go through all the stages if you made it through being a t-boy runner then you had to go into the maintenance department for a little while so you and had to work your way up various steps in the organization that were a trial by fire yeah and each department and you had to go into maintenance tech department for a while where you'd get a load of abuse from five people a lot of it was mind games to see if you could handle it Mm -hmm. a lot of it was because it was very english and the english back then liked to dish out abuse 
then I had to go into copying for a month and just copy tapes for a month. But you learn everything about tape, mm -hmm. every tape machine, every kind of tape, every bias, the smell of every wheel of tape and recognize tape by its smell, how to align it, all these different machines, how to do copies. So there was a purpose to it. It was a very boring job, but the purpose was that you would learn everything about tape. Mm -hmm. And again, there'd be a new person throwing abuse at you to see if you could handle their version of it. Then I had to go into the disc cutting mastering for a while and assist in there. Same thing. And everyone was vetting you to see if you were worthy of, of trident material and whether you had what it took to be able to sit on a session and sit in the room and run the machines and handle the responsibility and handle the crazy rock and roll behavior of the 1970s. And at Trident, every day was a major artist. Every day was a big band, sometimes with very big egos or very big habits or bad behavior. And it was really, really tough. So everyone was vetting you along the way. I, w I will say why I got into Trident, why I got hired a as a construction worker was because of technology. And the technology was that they needed to put a bigger glass window in the control room, which they were extending into open space because the control room was upstairs looking down, like Abbey Road 2, the Beatles room, mm -hmm. because they were putting in a Trident A-Range console, which was a legendary, there were only ever 13 ever made. But the Trident A-Range is a legendary console, the control wasn't big enough. So to put the new technology in and Trident was going up to 48 track from 24 because now synchronizers had been worked out. Uh, the technology had arrived that you could synchronize two machines. So if it hadn't been for kind of like synchronizers and a bigger console, they wouldn't have needed to hire me as a construction And yet you worker. were not the tech guy. You were the language guy. You yeah. were the... The listening guy and not and the tech wasn't your space walking into this. I failed, I failed physics, science, even biology, algebra, geometry. I passed arithmetic because I would do all that in my head, but I failed anything scientific. But music, I realized, is language. It's series of notes and inflections and accent. So, what was your next adventure in this pathway? Working up, becoming tape operator sitting on, in on sessions of which I the first sessions I sat in on were four albums with Kiss which was a quite a baptism I would think so yeah uh, when they all did the solo albums in the Trident way in the handing down of knowledge the the producer engineers Roy Thomas Baker and Mike Stone who produced engineered Queen uh, Ken Scott who did the Bowie albums and T-Rex and Louis Transformer, which was done there. Uh, Gus Dudgeon, who did the Elton John albums. They defined the way, the Trident way of doing things. Uh, the Trident approach, which was always very experimental, always trying to do something different. It was a fly by the seat of your pants, make it up as you go along. Never sat down and taught anything. It was just watch, listen, shut up and learn and breathe if you were given permission. <laughs> you know. That was the way, but I was watching, listening, and learning to some of the greatest music makers around. So I, I assisted Mike Stone on and off for three years, and Mike had engineered the first five Queen albums. Um, and then we did the Kiss albums. As I moved up through the ranks, I moved up quite quickly because, again, I had quite a lot of negative energy towards me 
again, on religious grounds. England was a very anti-Semitic country. I mean, mm-hmm. it's on the rise now, mm-hmm. but it was then. And it was very tough. And I just had to be better and more bulletproof than anyone else. There couldn't be a chink in my armor. So it just pushed me to move quicker and faster. And I think I was one of the fastest moving people at Trident that got through the ranks. From the day I walked in, I was on sessions within nine months, which was unheard of. Normally it would be 18 months or more. At Abbey Road, it could be two years. But anyway, started to sit in on sessions and and then run the machines, run more. The engineers or producer would give me more responsibility. And then I got up to sitting at the console on mixes and my first experience of sitting on a mix with hands on the console four of us with 10 faders each was um rush permanent waves an album with spirit of radio i'd assisted on the album before hemispheres but on permanent waves was the first time i sat at the console with 10 faders and responsibility sitting with terry brown the producer and then getty and alex from rush and that was the most phenomenal mind blowing experience ever of understanding that all the notes have been recorded the sounds of the notes have been got the arrangement is amazing all the details have been worked out but now we're mixing and bringing a whole new level of life Mm -hmm. to the performance and that mixing was and is a performance and it was a and it was incredible almost spiritual connect between four people playing 10 faders each of the of the song and bringing that performance to a whole new level and it really expanded my mind in the potential of feeling music and feeling a mix and expanding performance into a whole different level. So what were the next 20 years of your adventure like? Good. Became an engineer, a Trident engineer, which was quite uh, an achievement. Then was working with bands. If the bands asked me my ideas and they liked them, then I'd be asked to co-produce. So I became co-producer and a producer. So I, I did four years at Trident in my initial period, from January 78 until the end of 81. Then Trident closed its doors for a business decision. If you see the Queen movie that's just out, mm-hmm. you'll see a little bit of the people behind Trident. And there's a good book okay. about it. Next 20 years, Trident closed. I moved to New York. was in New York for six months, working in studios in New York. Trident reopened a second studio asked me to come back and head up a new team of producers and engineers because the lineage had been broken. The way of handing down knowledge had been broken because the studio had closed. Mm -hmm. So the T-Boy system had been broken. So they asked me as someone who'd been in the 70s Trident to come back and put together an an early 80s Trident. And the team that with the owners we put together included Flood, who's PJ Harvey, Nick Cave, seven U2 albums. Mm-hmm. Alan Mulder, who does all the Nine Inch Nails stuff, did a load of U2 as well. And Flood and Alan together did The Killers and they did Smashing Pumpkins with Butch Vig of uh, Nirvana and Garbage Fame. Spike Stent, who's one of the top mixers in the world, does Coldplay, U2, Madonna, just everything, basically. Mm-hmm. And we put together a whole new team of a new era of Trident. In that period, uh, Flood was doing Depeche Mode. I worked with The Cure in that time uh, on a lot of German kind of techno, mm-hmm. industrial kind of stuff. Um, at Trident, I'd come through the big rock era. Then we'd gone into the disco era. Then because of disco, we went into the <laughs> punk era. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in early 80s, again, 
partly to, through the technology of being able to properly synchronize a drum machine with an arpeggiator or keyboard sequencer because the technology was now there. Um, suddenly there was the whole era of electronic music like Depeche or New Order and all these kind of bands that largely it was only because the technology had become available that it spawns a new kind of music. Technology has often allowed that, whether it was a synchronizer between tape machines going from two track to three track to eight track and then 16 and 24 and then you could do 48, then you could do 72. This was all pre-digital. Mm-hmm. Technology has often enabled a new genre of music. So in New York, yeah. you then are, were moving forward, or you had gone back to the UK, or you were, were doing all this out of New York? I was doing it out of New York, but then I, w- oh, I went back to the UK, Trident opened at the end of 83, th- reopened. Mm-hmm. So that's when I went back for all of 84 and some of 85, okay. and established a second room, which was also a solid state logic room. So you've been on the ground floor. Yeah. Of a gigantic number of changes from all of this wonderful time frame that you were showing how you've learned and grown and been beaten mm. to the ground in some places yeah. to get to that. And then began to work and were working deeply with top, top creative artists yeah, and creators. Yeah. How did that adventure then continue? You, How long were you in New York and what was that adventure? New, New York was fantastic. Um, it was only six months. Because mm-hmm. um, I actually got called back by Margaret Thatcher's government to go off and get get called up for the military ah. because she, she'd managed to find a war that she could start somewhere. That I recall from that time right. period. So I actually was given a week to leave New York and had to go back. Um, but luckily that didn't happen. Um, so there's a moment of luck. Um, but. There's, I've always been at the front of technology mm-hmm. and I've always been freaked out by it. Um, so when solid state logic consoles came out, mm-hmm. um, suddenly there was a computer in a console. In, ni- in 1983, I was... How old was I? <laughs> I was 23, 24-ish. Mm-hmm. No, 25, 6. Um, I got the... I told you... Math is not your thing. In your head. You can do it in your head. Right, yeah. So um, suddenly there was a computer in a console. Mm -hmm. I'd been in studios for six years. Now, out of my 41, there was now a computer in a console. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. Game over. I will never get my head around this. I'm 26 years old. I'm not the computer generation this is 83. <laughs> and I thought game over. Yeah. And went into a major sulk. And then after a few weeks thought, no, hang on. I'm not prepared to be thrown on the scrap heap just yet. So I'm going to get in. I'm going to get in early. And so part of that was like when Trident had asked me to come back and said they're putting in an SL, SSL console. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God, that's the one with the computer. Um, and they said, have you got experience? I said, yeah, of course. When you didn't have any? No. Yeah. When I went for the job as a chef in Sweden as a washer up and the assistant chef stormed out of the restaurant as I walked in and the chef turned to me in panic and said, have you got experience? We need an assistant chef. I said, of course. 
Now, I've lived that life. When I first was um, got a job to work at Paramount when I was as in my master's program, I was asked if I could use Excel. Actually, Lotus 123, excuse me, at the time. And I said, of course, that was a Friday. Um, crammed on it all weekend mm. and started on Monday. So I sympathize with that entire point of view. Mm. I don't encourage our students to do that no. at times. No, of you course have, not. You have to deliver. You've got to take your chances. Yeah. But you've got to deliver. It doesn't last very long if you can't deliver so you got into the computer side of this and i would right. like to kind of cut forward quite a ways yeah. but i don't want to miss all the great stuff that the, you've done um just worked on loads of different music um through producing first hit was a band called the blow monkeys okay uh it was a hit in la and that's all over the world so that's the first time i was flown to la was 1986 um the cure track had come out at the same time i did those songs back to back there's a song called Close to Me. That was a big hit. It still is. So that was a very seminal moment. Um, but then started coming to LA. But worked, I was working always at Trident because I had grown up listening to different music. If, if there was ever anything weird, I was put on the session. Ah. So whether it was a jazz record with Hoagy Carmichael mm. or it was a jazz record with Joey Mulligan or um, working with... Uh, opera, Jose Carreras. Mm -hmm. No one ever knew anything about that, so it was always put Adam on it. He'll figure it out. Um, so then worked on so many different kinds of music. Seven albums with Bill Bruford from Yes, uh, his jazz records. Um, again, did, I did a, worked on a load of the punk records. And then late 80s, um, into the 90s, there was a Swedish band, Roxette. There was a big mm -hmm. star in America, Richard Marks. Um, very much that radio, easy listening rock kind of uh, AOR, whatever it's called. I can't remember. But there was all the different stations. But anyway, worked through a load of that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, while also going off to Spain without telling people and doing three records with gypsy bands. Because if people knew I was doing these weird records, I wouldn't get hired for pop records. Okay. So I was always traveling and doing unusual stuff. But so you're both producing and being and then yeah, an engineer. producing, engineering, and, and mixing. mixing. Yeah. Um, Technology-wise, with the solid-state logic consoles, I got in. I became one of the people giving feedback to SSL. Mm -hmm. So I became one of their not beta guys, but what we now we would call a beta mm -hmm. kind of tester. That's carried on now where I'm working with a lot of technology companies. Um, when technology came out, when MIDI systems came out, mm -hmm. end of the 80s, 1988, I converted the garage in my house into a MIDI studio. I got Cubase. Again, when MIDI came out and computer systems, again, I thought, that's it, game over. Sulked. Then I thought... <laughs> Then I thought, you have a sulking thread I, here. With, with technology, makes me sulk. Then well, I thought, no, I'm not done yet. So I got Cubase 1988 uh, and an Atari computer and ran Cubase on an Atari. Loads of drum machines, loads of keyboard modules, MIDI switching modules, because there weren't like boxes that did complete through. You had different switching boxes for wherever the input was coming from to the computer. Then I had to switch back out from the computer on MIDI channel to which box, to mm -hmm, which device Which, it would which go we're more to. and more into that uh, back now. Yeah. I got an Akai sampler, S1000, mm -hmm. maxed it out, got all the mods done. It cost about 5,000 pounds back then. Um, 
And then it came back from, I've forgotten who did the mods for me. It came back and I stared at it for three months, completely freaked out about this technology, thinking I'll never get my head around that. Got my... And then there's a bit of a round tripping though, right? Because it's similar to the fact that you, you've you got the whole uh, past of the smell of the tape and knowing how mm. you can do some of that stuff to take that same knowledge base exactly. to bring it into the digital space. Uh, th- that oftentimes coming into a new tech, you're still translating backwards into here's what I used to do right. when I was sitting in hand splicing tape and I can bring that whole thought process forward to think of it in a new way. There's thing, things I cover in, in my course, which is so many people love the old sound of music or the old style of music or wonder why old music felt so good mm-hmm. or music recorded back in the era, mm-hmm. different eras. And the reason was was because there wasn't technology, so people had to make it up invent sounds, invent techniques of how to do it. When we had delays, the delays were bits of tape being, you'd have a send on the console. If your voice or the lead guitar came up, a channel on the console, and you had a send button one, which you'd press the button in and turn up the send, send it down a cable, which would go to a two-track stereo machine. The tape would go past the record head and record the signal you were sending from the console. Then you'd pull the tape off the tape machine, put it around a mic stand, and then let the tape go back to the playback head of the tape machine. The length of the tape going around the mic stand was how long your delay was. So we'd be mixing these albums, and we'd have maybe four different mic stands going on with four different stereo tape machines, each one with a different delay. The magic was the feeling of the delay was always done by ear. We didn't have a MIDI sync button Mm-hmm. that we could click or a chart that we could work out 28 and a half inches at 30 IPS equals a delay of X amount of milliseconds. Mm-hmm. We had to do it by ear and by feel. That's why things felt good back then. Why the records feel good because the technology wasn't taking over. It wasn't doing the thinking for us. It wasn't doing the feeling for us. We had to figure it out. Sound toys plugins, which are the best effects company. Mm-hmm. Um, on their tape delays, they have a button uh, which is called feel. And you can make the delay rush or drag. Hmm. So you can still MIDI sync, MIDI clock your delay to the tempo of your song. It will be exactly on a 16th or an 8th triplet or a 32nd. But then there's a button, there's a, a knob which is rushing or dragging. To and kind of just give that edge Because to they it. understand what it was back then. Mm-hmm. So if, for all new music makers, if you understand and educate yourself, and the information's out there, there is YouTube, if you understand how it was done and incorporate that into your music, your music will have more character. Technology has never been, should never be the boss of you. It's another... Other t- than making you sulk. Right, Yeah. <laughs> It always makes me Be a temporary bus. Yeah, you know. it's, a, it's a little one. And then I get stubborn again. Well, a lot of it also sounds like it's listening to a lot of music of the past and having a deep and broad vocabulary to pull mm. from, too. But even so, it's sometimes hard to look under a completed record's hood mm. to see how that stuff all came together if you hadn't kind of been through the trenches. Right. That's very much what I do in the course is we reverse engineer a lot of songs. Mm. Um, I have some great original sessions of Motown, Marvin Gaye, Queen on in Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. Um, again, when Pro Tools came out, I was freaked out. Usual, <laughs> usual thing. Um, but again, thought, 
okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this before. Deep sigh. Okay, now I'll get on with this. Well, how does your synesthesia or, or, or pieces of synesthesia play into that? Because in, in many ways, you're explaining a process to someone who can't see it the way you right. do. And we, we all see music differently. Mm-hmm. We all hear music differently. Just in synesthesia, people see color differently. We all have a different spectrum. We see shades differently. Some people have different degrees of colorblindness or blurring of colors together, merging. Uh, our ears have to be similar. Mm-hmm. No one, we don't even have two same ears, you know, on our head, let alone other people have the same ears. We have similar mm-hmm. hearing. Uh, we all react differently to different frequencies which make us feel differently. So in terms of, in when the technology and synchronizers came out around 84, 85, that was allowing synchronized music. Uh, with drum machines and arpeggiators and sequencer mm-hmm. sequences, I felt that music at that time, I was producing a lot of the bands and making a lot of the records and mixing day after day after day. And it started to feel like a factory job mm-hmm. to me. It's another time when I nearly quit. <clears throat> it was like seven, eight years in. Um, because I felt like there was just a process. And I felt that mixing became very flat across the a 2D spectrum of left and right speaker. And then through boredom and frustration i thought there has to be more than this there has to be more available it's what i call my through the looking glass moment and i feel that i got up and walked through between the speakers and stood behind the speakers and thought oh my god there's a whole world of space behind here and then walk in the front again and thought and up here above them and below them and behind them and in front of them. So you were 5.1 sounding before 5.1 yeah, sound. Yeah, a whole world of immersive mixing in stereo. Um, that's something I've become known for in my mixes. My stereo mixes are very immersive. Uh, I've traveled so hard. In, in You're talking about synesthesia and seeing things in color and shades and moments and movement and the shape of a sound, the space it takes up within the sonic field. which is the space above, below, in front of and behind the speakers. Mm -hmm. It's an immersive field, even in stereo. And sounds, music production is about arrangement. It's about the arrangement of musical notes into parts that work together and complement and support each other and create dynamics and create emotional moments. Um, But it's the sounds of the notes, which also are full of emotion, which is what I learned at Trident, of learn your... Train your ears, listen to this instrument and capture which version of the instrument has the emotion um, that represents the the emotion you're trying to project in the song that you have. Um, So sound is very much about capturing emotion. And then how you arrange the sound in the picture creates different dynamics of closeness, proximity. Someone singing personally as if you're the only person they're singing to or a wall of sound coming out, which gives you G-force and makes you know grabs you by the throat and won't let go of you um but it's all emotion achieved through sound and dynamics and arrangement of those sounds within the sonic field um and that to me is like the art of of production in terms of synesthesia i see things in i do see things in colors and in shades it's interesting that every door system i work primarily in pro tools 
I work on a lot of film scores and TV uh, projects these days where nearly all the composers I work with uh, work with Logic. And then I'm doing a lot of really out there kind of electronic dance kind of tracks or house mixes for people. Um, Because I remember house the first time it came around like 25 years ago. Um, And um, And you're also the working on on, um, spatial audio. Yeah, absolutely. Which again is my new journey now. I've been working with some plugin companies, uh, Brainworks Plugin Alliance, and I do beta testing for them. Um, So again, I'm right on the edge of technology. Um, I was doing a lot of feedback for barefoot speakers who are, I'm endorsed by, but I think they're sensational speakers. I'm now working with a headphone company um, to try and develop the best pair of headphones for mixing. But also, also one, because I know music makers these days can't afford $7,000 on a pair of speakers. And if mm-hmm. they can, their roommates are going to get peed off or their neighbors <laughs> or their parents. So it's coming more and more down to headphones. So how can we have a true, real an immersive experience in headphones or earbuds. So that's why that's what's led me to my journey into technology of one with the new new plugin companies mm-hmm. uh, and also with headphones so that we can have that experience and have an immersive experience, have a pair of headphones that represent all the depth and dimension and surround um, ambisonic or binaural kind of experience. Um, recently, I've done... F- five projects with John Cale from Velvet Underground over the years. Um, Last year I mixed a film score of his and I mixed the music in 5.1, which normally you mix the music in stereo avoiding center channel Mm -hmm. because the sound design and the sound effects are what's used in the surround sphere and the rear speakers. It's pretty rare, although it's starting to happen, that you would mix music for a feature Mm -hmm. with the music being in surround. I'm on the next wave of my journey into technology now, which is um, with immersive sound, as I said, ambisonic binaural kind of mixing. Binaural is? Um, Binaural is is the spatial of actually hearing objects move around you and distance. Um, It's not just the stereo plane. It's where things are maybe slightly behind you behind your left shoulder. Or they are in motion. Yes, or they're far away behind your left shoulder Mm -hmm. and they walk across the back of the room behind you that you hear at the back of your head and then they start coming towards you maybe from the right. And and as we've talked a little bit, things like VR are also working and playing with this so that something is either a sound trigger moving past you or something that it's getting to be a little more ambitious but not necessarily on the front end of design and that's the thing is uh conversations i've had and why i'm moving into the new audio side of you know the whole i think xr is the general term for it but just uh a more immersive i was going to say augmented but then that is its own ar yeah, is its yeah. own thing as well but a more immersive experience of audio Obviously, there's there's a head tracking company I'm working with from France. Um, so obviously, VR and head tracking games, you know that that's one element where if you're doing having a VR experience or an augmented experience, and you move your head and the sound changes, um, then obviously you have to have tracking head tracking so that there's interactive with the video with the visual that as you turn your head, you your 
audio slightly changes with proximity of what you're looking at or hearing the sound from. Obviously, in simulator games or, you know, training for whether it's paramedics or combat troops or whatever the experience is, the audio has to move with the visual. But also what is unexplored is people are mixing music, and I've heard some things using Dolby Atmos, which is amazing, Mm -hmm. but most people aren't going to have a 7.2.4 speaker configuration at home. My husband would like to, but we don't have that yet. Right. (laughs) And, and, And the thing is, the way it folds down, the Atmos folds down, is getting a lot, lot better. The way it folds down to headphones, mm-hmm. it's getting better. But the music experience has to be has to be mixed specifically for headphones or earbuds. Um, th- that I think is a whole new world, a whole opportunity which is being overlooked at the moment. Even with the music being mixed in surround sound, it's being mixed in Dolby Atmos. Yet we've got Facebook. 360 mm-hmm. available and people are some artists are making videos for themselves and many more should be doing lots more because just as i was listening to one of your other podcasts and just in talking about what's available to young artists how to promote themselves facebook for all their issues and whatever they've put facebook 360 up there it's available mm-hmm. i think youtube are doing doing the same mm-hmm. this stuff is available it's free um, there are the plugins that will enable you to mix in 360 for headphones, and it's a whole new world. As I said, music mixing, everyone's now doing the classic albums again, Pink Floyd again, Beatles again, which I love. But um, it for those companies, it's just a new way to reissue. Instead of the every-20-year digitally remastered version, mm-hmm. now they can reissue a surround sound mix in 5.1, um, I feel the 5.1 mixes are kind of static and not much is happening. You feel the sound around you if you happen to have 5.1 or 7.2.4 at home, then you'll have that. But that isn't being remixed at the moment for earbuds or headphones. There's a whole new world of technology. And as I mean, especially at UCLA, it's something that excites me is to actually start to develop uh, with young sonic people and new content makers, because content is king. We all know that um, with any streaming service or whether it's Netflix or Amazon or whoever, you, Hulu, whichever with subscription, the first thing you do is look and see what have they got. Mm-hmm. If, it's, if it's Showtime or HBO, you look and see what content they have. But you don't necessarily think the audio side, you assume that it's going to be high caliber, high quality, and that's where some of the adventure is. Exactly. The delivery system has to get better. Mm -hmm. The streaming quality has to get better. But audiences are getting more selective. Just the rise of vinyl, of having a warm sonic experience. I think people are tired of listening to crappy MP3s, really compressed files that have huge chunks of information missing. You know, and... The resurgence of vinyl, it's not just the hipster thing. You know, it's also that people want to have a better sonic experience. We've come full circle now, starting with vinyl and mm. ending with vinyl. Anything yeah. you'd like to add on adventures you're on now or ways people might get a hold of you or work with you as a closing part here? Yeah, I'm, I'm to get a hold of me. You've got the spelling of my name, 
<laughs> and my website is my name. It's just okay. adammosley.net, one word. Um, I normally pop up. There's a few interviews that I've done for Barefoot and the Trident new consoles um, where I talk about my process. Um, I'm very, very keen to share the education that I've had, mm -hmm. the things that I've learned, the process of educating my instincts and how to interpret emotion through sound and present that uh, through music, through, through any configuration of speakers or headphones uh, or any version of technology. Wherever we are now, there will always be the next phase of technology which will blow my mind. And make you sulk for a short make period me sulk of for time. For a short period of time and then I'll suddenly be one of the beta guys on it. You know, the thing is just use your imagination. That's the most important thing. Technology is not the boss of us yet. You know, it's a tool that we employ to help us achieve a result. If we have a crap idea, then it will really help us achieve a crap idea. But if we've got <laughs> a great idea and we know how to employ the technology to enhance our idea and present it, then it's, it's fantastic. And there's always been technology, there always will be. It will always progress. But at this time, it still doesn't create compelling songs or compelling visual experiences or stories. Not yet. We still control that. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. No, it's great. It's a pleasure. And this is a great part of UCLA. It's, it's such an emerging, exciting field. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.